Today's program is proudly brought to you by Whole Foods Market. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com or download the Whole Foods Market app to learn more and find the store nearest to you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Hello, this is your host, Dana Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly on Heritage Radio Network. Each week I interview an extraordinary person who works behind the scenes in the food industry to learn about their road to success, their challenges along the way, and their vision for how to move forward in both their life and their career. Today's guest is someone I met while on a Women in Leadership tour with Bacardi. She's a skilled bartender and beverage director who's worked in cities around the country from Chicago, New Orleans, and most recently New York City at Tokyo Record Bar. She is vocal about racial and diverse equity within the hospitality community. If you want to actually do something about inequity rather than talk about it or despair about it, you'll want to listen to this entire show to hear everything that Ashton Barry has to say. Ashton? Really happy to have you. I'm happy to be here. That's um, good. Especially since you are just off a plane from Thailand. I, um, I'm, you've got a cup of hot coffee in your hand. and I am. I feel like this is the best way to start. Like, just get off of the plane and just go into the day. Okay. Right? Like, no time for jet lag. Like, let's just keep it going. <laughs> so, we have together a special guest to launch the show, and that's N- Natasha Pickowitz, who's the pastry chef at Matter House. Now, Matter House might not be a name that resonates with you, but two of the projects that she works on, which are extraordinary and favorites of mine, may well. In New York City, Cafe Altro Paradiso and also Flora Bar. So Natasha is here today because of a project that she's doing. She's holding a bake sale. <laughs> Welcome, Natasha. Hi, thank you so much for having me. So uh, I love everything that you bake. The pastry case at um, Flora Bar is so special. And of course, the pastries at, uh, or the dessert really, not just pastry, at Cafe Ultra Paradiso. Thank you. But I love a bake sale. Like, mm-hmm. I love butter. I love sugar. <laughs> I love anything that, that combines those two, <laughs> eggs, milk. Me um, too. Yeah. Um, and so the bake sale that you're holding this Sunday, April 8th, starting at 11 o'clock, where you're collecting all kinds of great pastry chefs to mm-hmm. um, share and sell their wares to benefit Planned Parenthood. Mm-hmm. I want to hear, how did you come up with this idea? Actually, this is the second year that we've done the bake sale. Um, this is sort of 2.0. And we, I actually came up with the idea of the bake sale shortly after the presidential election at the end of 2016. And I think, you know, as a restaurant group and as a, you know, community of people, we were all kind of trying to strategize ways that we could do something to sort of address how upset and angry and and sort of helpless that we felt in the wake of what that was. And I was just drawing on things that I knew, you know, and, and pastry is my work and the thing that I love. And I wanted to sort of create a happening or like a moment that 
tapped into the aspects of my work that felt personal to me. So I was thinking about, you know, just a very literal sort of representation of this bake sale, you know, where you're bringing together your community and your neighbors come out and people are donating their time, but also their work. And, but I wanted to sort of elevate it with, you know, friends and colleagues, people I knew and people I wanted to know and people who not even necessarily were pastry specific, but I thought would kind of bring an interesting, you know, dynamic into the lineup. And, you know, we were so, I was so blown away by the, you know, the amazing energy and the generosity of the people from last year. So this year we were like, we have to make this a annual tradition and, you know, really continue to develop our relationship with Planned Parenthood in New York City, um, which was, you know, a very poignant decision for me to have our relationship be with them specifically, not just Planned Parenthood, but PPNYC. Um, so that people would know that their donations and contributions are going to go back into programming that is directly affects people in the city. You know, it's like since I moved here four years ago, like I've been to Planned Parenthoods up in the Bronx. I've been with one in Brooklyn. You know, it's been such an incredible part and sort of service for me personally. And, you know, I wanted that. To Do you have a beyond just wanting to help Planned Parenthood personal connection to them? Um, you know, I, I wanted it to be something that addressed, um, like, women's health um, specifically and kind of provided these really important services and education, you know, helping families, too, you know. And, and I thought that that would be a really great way for us to sort of vocalize, you know, our support and, and for them Okay, so when I went, the, um, the choice of pastry, it was it's, a little... Uh, terrifying because of what I said earlier about how I love butter, sugar, <laughs> eggs, and flour, and all the combinations therein. So there's a $5 door charge, which was awesome because mm -hmm. it makes it accessible and available to your neighbors. And pretty much, like, I came with my son. He was ready with his $5, you know? <laughs> and then he got a little, you know, he asked for, like, it wasn't really his money entirely. But then he got, you know, a $5 ticket to um, buy whatever pastries he chose. Right. But um, just to make people listening hungry and want to go, yes. can you just do some uh, pastry name dropping? I would um, love to. Like, <laughs> just make me I, hungry. I've been joking to people that I, it sort of feels like I'm like planning my dream wedding, you know, <laughs> with the like floor plan and like the program, the run of show. But it also feels like I'm like, curating my own dream music festival you know it's like the way that I'm bringing in these people it's been really exciting so one of the things that was important to me was to sort of grandfather in everybody that did it last year just to preserve that sort of continuity and like good vibes um, so a lot of the people pretty, pretty much everybody who did it last year is coming back so that's you know that's Superiority Burger that's so what did they make? Last year, it was gelato. This year, Brooks is insisting on a plated dessert that I'm sure will be presented in one of his boats. <laughs> but I, I really want to leave it up to them so, you know, people can do something signature or something maybe different that they wouldn't normally do, you know, with more fine dining places like Le Cucu, Le Bernardin, uh, Gramercy Tavern, um, you know. It's, it's a really great way for people to experience the, their work, but in these more affordable increments. Maybe they're doing something off the cuff. Maybe it's different for them. Um, and then we have more like bakeries. So Saragina, Mazadar Bakery, Sullivan Street Bread, um, you know, The Smile. And then we have like lots of restaurants that maybe were had just opened or were too young to sort of participate last year that are coming this year. So 
the the women from King, um, Claire from Altway. Um, you know, we have Once Upon a, a Tart coming. We have Renard, um, She Wolf Bread, Wild Air. Although maybe they're going to be doing something from their new pizza place, which is yet to be open. Exciting! See, we get a preview. Okay, so what about you, Natasha? What are you making? Because we don't know what they're going to make, <laughs> right? Um, and so you, it sounds like though you curated who's baking, you mm-hmm. didn't curate what they're making. Right. So what well, about you? <laughs> well, we are trying to mitigate that slightly by asking that people tell us what they make in advance so there's not like 12 people selling chocolate chip cookies. Yeah. That way when Alison Roman is going to be there, she can be like, here's my cookie. And then it can be this like wonderful <laughs> the special magic thing. Cookie. Yeah. But um, this year I'm going to be doing our bomboloni alla crema, which is like our yeasted donut that we just started doing for the brunch service at Ultra and it has really like kind of sweet and salty vanilla bean pastry cream stuffed into it. And then for the savory treat, I've been making, um, when I did this pop-up collaborative project with Simone Schubach at her, at this gallery space in uh, Prospect Park called Wifey, I uh, sort of worked on this naturally leavened focaccia. So I've been starting making these little pizzettes that I want to kind of riff off of Ignacio's um, Ignacio Matos, who's my chef. chef. Yeah, he does this like beautiful kind of signature fennel salad at Ultra and has shaved fennel, Castelvetrano olive, orange zest, um, provolone. And it's just really bright and verdant and sweet and salty and, you know, briny. And it's, I want to do that in like a pizza form. So we just want to play around with it. Honestly, like that is the easiest part of my day in terms of producing this event <laughs> I have a great team um, that's going to help me you know do that massive bake-off first thing in the morning because we do not want to run out of anything for anybody um, so we're asked we ask for larger donations from all the participating chefs and bakers um, so we don't you know 86 everything by 1145 which kind of happened last year right 86 <laughs> that would mean run out yeah. and when I got there you were running out and I was like oh my gosh I wanted to sprint from you know yeah. person to person to be sure that I got the very last or next to last yeah oh that sounds very selfish doesn't it but you know it's all <laughs> it's all for a good cause right no but it's true I like you know we had people who maybe had to work that morning or work brunch and kind of scoot it over at three and it, I want the feeling of celebration and party and generosity to sort of like continue all day long and then go right up into dinner at Ultra where people are like drinking wine and eating oysters like you know I just the way that people came together and you know the spirit of it like you know it wasn't about us but it was like bigger than that you know and to have Planned Parenthood be such a positive like sort of force for us to collaborate with and sort of help plan has been incredibly meaningful and to also be able to make that kind of gesture within our community and like down at Soho and to sort of like create a moment like that I think sometimes with these like restaurants you kind of get stuck in oh I'm in my basement I'm doing my thing I'm just preparing food for the dinner service tonight and the customers that are coming in and paying so it gets a little myopic and for me, it was, I was, made me feel tense, you know, like, this is like, there has to be more than this. Like, this is so nothing. This is, doesn't really mean anything. Like, it has to be, you know, like, community and, and being involved with the people around me. Is- so, um, Ashton, I've actually heard you moderate panels. You're an exquisite moderator. And <laughs> um, I wonder, because this is, there's an intersection between the work that Natasha's doing hospitality, which is your world as well. Yeah. And thing that you spend 
a ton of time thinking about. Like, what's your reaction to this? Any questions? I I mean, one, it sounds amazing. Um, it starts at 11 a.m. on yeah. April 8th, correct? Okay, I got that because I was like, I want to make <laughs> sure I make there. it by. Yeah. Um, when you partner with Planned Parenthood, did you just say, we kind of want to partner with you? Or did you kind of talk to them about, like, what your goals for the community were? Yeah, I mean, I think that the relationship that we wanted to have was one where we wanted to give them something and and also kind of narrowing the scope to be PPNYC specifically, mm-hmm. um, where the women who are sort of, the women and men who are running the programs there are people I can sit down with and meet and know and it's not email and it's not like removed like that, but they're people, you know, it's like they're on um, broom and, and spring. They're I was about just, to say they're right there. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think for me, it was more just like I wanted to create that. um, I wanted to create that relationship. And to me, it began with offering this donation and this way to sort of profess our like, you know, appreciation for them. So outside of that, you know, I think the kind of conversations that we are having with them are have been getting more specific and you know, have been getting more, like, interactive, you know, not as, like, one-dimensional, like, here's our donation. But I think at first, just in, like, of, like, in terms of, um, like, good spirit, like, kind of, you know, trust, I wanted it to just be, like, this is what we, we're just trying to help, like, here's what we have. I mean, I think that's how most people um, actually kind of start in terms of, you know, in America in general, we don't really have a system of talking about community giving. Um, we don't really procure our children or anything in ways of like talking about how you give to communities mm-hmm. um, in an overall kind of status, not even within the school system. Um, like in Japan, children are groomed in ways of talking about giving back um, to people in their community. So I think that most people in America um, look at altruism or look at giving back in financial means, which is a great way to give back. But I think that that's always what people should look at it as you have, I think, which is really great, is an opening of a door right. of something's greater, which is a relationship. Like, I love when you said PBMNYC because that means that you, like, actually sought out people right. who you could not only could be accountable for where your money wins, but who could then be accountable to you to make sure that you're, like keep in touch with you to be like how can this grow and how can this become something larger and like how can you now I mean now you're somewhat of a gatekeeper to the hospitality industry right Right. which is like a really great thing and resource for them to have beyond your financial means and um, I think in hospitality industry at large sometimes we're so great because the way that we work is in such a um a lot of times transactional way, right? That we somehow sometimes forget the ways in which we are on the front lines of so much interaction, which actually makes us like all, no matter if you're a cashier um, who works at McDonald's or if you're a server or whether you're a bartender or a manager, which makes you this like really interesting gatekeeper to all of this information. Um, and when you choose to go out of your way to say, I have this information, I have this skill set, and I want to partner with someone who has these amazing expectations and great work like Planned Parenthood, I think it almost only bolsters both sides totally. to be able to do like amazing things. So one of the things that I, I love about this, um, and then Ashton, we're going to focus only on you, um, but I love the idea, well, the big sale clearly, but 
also the model that you've created, which is very personal to you, specific to your restaurant, is something that I think could inspire other restaurants and other individuals in other communities. Because though there is a heavy lift in terms of organizing, I think the the fact that it's open to the entire community and you're using people whose skills are in baking, mm-hmm. you know, um, and I can see all across America uh, chef-driven, you know, bake sales for communities and what a beautiful uh, way to spend a Sunday um, and to get people to, you know, spend the day eating bomboloni. So, um, Natasha, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope to see you guys both there and thank you for helping me talk a little bit about this event. Of course, April 8th, Sunday, 11 o'clock. Rain or shine. Rain or shine. (laughs) Snow or shine. I'm about to say snow or shine at this point. (laughs) I know. Today is uh, April 2nd. I thought it was like an April Fool's Day (laughs) joke, you know, like a cosmic, why was it snowing when I woke up today? But it was. And I'm glad that the snow didn't delay your your plane. So, um, Ashton, you've um, you've made your career in the hospitality industry, but uh, it is not where you started. So, um, you seem to have, uh, when you went to college, been really interested in in dance and community and the intellectual life. Yeah. So tell I me mean, about tell kinda. me about what, what <laughs> tell me about what what drew you to that and um um I've kind of always been someone who has my hand in a million different pots. Um I have always kind of been in love with dance and I've always been in love with just like the physicality of it, the challenges of it. And when I went to college, I kind of just realized Wow, I loved dance and I loved all of the ways that it made me feel. I feel like in many ways it was like a coping mechanism for me. Um, Coping mechanism for what in particular? Just, you know, um, just life. I mean, I definitely, I wouldn't say I had a hard childhood, but, you know, my father did five tours um, abroad in war. You know, my mother was a single mother. who were, who was an active who is an activist in her own right, but um, focused on sexual health education within Chicago, um, within the city, focused uh, particularly on queer youth um, and their contraction of HIV/AIDS. Um, so, you know, I think in many ways, when you're not taught how to vocalize how you're feeling, or you know, some kids go to sports. Um, I believe that's why, like, a lot of children who live in certain neighborhoods who maybe are without in certain ways go to sports. The physicality of it allows you to express yourself in a way that maybe is difficult to figure out the words, especially if no one's helping you kind of, like, understand what those words were. But it's interesting was because your mother, it seems, actually would be such a great – you were using the word gateway before, but she would try to bring that out of you, or did she just spend I mean, a lot I think of – she, I think she did in some ways, but my mother also had me at a very young age. Um, so I am, you know, a product of a mother who had me her final year of high school. Actually, she had dropped out and went back to school when she found out she was pregnant with me. Um, and so, and she was a military kid, so she lived all over. She actually um, spent a big part of her adolescence in England. Um, and then she came back to the States to have me. So I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, she was learning, like, when she was 
helping me grow, you know, mm-hmm. and in her own right, trying to say, I don't want to raise my daughter in the way that I've been raised mm-hmm. in the community that I've been raised in. And so she made a lot of brave, excellent choices for me, but that also came at a cost, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's very hard to be like, I am not only going to have a child as a teenager, but I'm also going to be the first one in my family to go to college. You know, and I'm also going to, like, raise my child in a neighborhood that, like, I don't know anybody. And I'm also, you know, and she made a lot of brave choices that I commend her for and kind of in awe of every day. Now, um, you, you had a grandmother who was part of your life. It sounds like. Oh, yeah, she was yeah, a, yeah. She was a great cook. cook and- yeah, so my great, um, when my mom decided to move back to the States, um, and she had had me, she had been living in Philly, um, for a little bit, and she just decided that that wasn't where she wanted to raise me. She reached out to uh, my great grandmother, who everybody great calls grandma. Mama, um, and she was like, basically, like, you know, I need help. Like, I want to go to college. I want to. I've already started my classes, but I, I need, I need assistance. Uh, basically, she needs someone who was gonna, who could act as a daycare, you know, and could, um, she could leave her daughter with, and you know, Mama was. Mama is still uh, excellent. Uh, I will see her on her birthday on the 4th of July. Uh, but yeah, she's kind of the matriarch of a family. She had seven kids. Um, and she kind of always was that kind of great-grandmother to everybody. She's not my mom's biological grandmother, but she like always in my mother's life and kind of like she kind of took a lot of kids in that way and kind of like nurtured them and took care of them and she's still like that to this day you know she sounds amazing she is she is you know she's like still like that to this day she still gets up every morning makes breakfast um all that food sounds so so good good. (laughs) i know yeah you know chicken and dumplings Mm. she used to make it for me from scratch i mean she used to make all of my meals from scratch i think about being a kid and like having the foods that I had as a kid, I was so lucky. Uh, so is she somehow the link to the love of hospitality? Because so I understand, you know, uh, dance. You were saying dance was an outlet, yeah. Um, and you were doing lots of things. You obviously were exposed to activism with your Mo- mother yeah. doing extraordinary yeah, work. Yeah. Um, but somehow these things. You know, I came together. I've got like a weird kind of family, right? Like, um, my dad's father was a jazz musician for a very long time. Um, my mother's father actually has owned and been a part of multiple bars in Philly. Wow. Um, so if there was anybody you'd say I probably get that bone from or everything like that, it'd probably be him. Okay. He's also the reason why I'm a Scotch drinker. Um, <laughs> yeah, my yeah, I don't know. It kind of just came naturally. Like, I mean, there's pictures of me as a baby sitting in a high chair in a bar, which I'm sure now people would be like, oh, my God, you know, <laughs> but like, you know, my grandfather would have me at the end of the bar. He'd be holding me and he would bring me to work sometimes. And um, I don't think things like that ever leave you like they it, it just never really leaves you. And I have a family who really loves community and they love 
they're a boisterous bunch, but they love food and they love drink and they love being around other people and they love taking care of other people. You know, if I drove up to my house in Memphis right now with a busload of people, my dad would get the smoker going and he would start, <laughs> you know, and he would start being like, what does everybody want to eat? And um, they'd bring, my uncle would probably bring out some moonshine and I'd have to explain to him that that's... We shouldn't do that. <laughs> I don't know. That, that sounds okay to me. What's the downside um, of that? Uh, nothing except for it's just really, really, really strong. <laughs> very potent. Um, yeah, very potent. So, yeah. but I, And, and yeah. somewhere along the way, your ideas became, I like the moonshine segue, the, your ideas actually became incredibly potent, right? Like, I've watched... Um, from the side, how, you know, it seems like the Tales of the Cocktail in New Orleans was the first mm-hmm. time that I could see the, the feisty Ashton, you know, Barry come out. Um, what can you tell me about your sort of, I'm not going to call it a transition because I have no idea where it exactly began, but the, to becoming a, a food uh, hospitality activist? Well, I think that the kind of the world's just collided finally. Um, I've always been interested in social justice and I've always been an activist on some level. Uh, I think that what happened was this little part of my life that no one at my job really knew about. Um, You know, what actually happened is I can tell you what happened. I left Chicago um, because I didn't feel like there was a place for me to grow in the hospitality industry or in the ways that I wanted to grow. I didn't see a pathway to it. And why was that? Um, I think, honestly, just there was a ceiling. There was a ceiling. At that time, I was so decided about being in the wine world. Um, I actually came to the cocktail world because I wanted to basically open up my ability to have access to other things because what I saw was this like very, very short wall for like how far I could go. And there was not really anybody to talk to. Uh, There was a limited number of not only women, but definitely people of color and definitely no women of color who at that time I could reach out to and say, how did you get there? Because most of them were still trying to get there. And they didn't really have time to talk to a 22-year-old about how they were going to help them get there because they were still scraping and clawing their way um, to try to figure out how they were going to get somewhere. And And did you really feel, is uh, the spirit side so much more open and more... In Chicago. Okay. Yes. In Chicago, there was just a lot more opportunity and a lot more support for women. Um, but what I found there was there was still a lack of support for women of color. And I think now it's a much more open conversation, but I think saying it then put a lot of people on edge. I think saying it even now puts people on edge. Um, that the thought that the intersection between weight, race, and womanhood is still such a fraught thing, I think still kind of makes people uncomfortable. But I was pretty vocal about it. And that, with the extensive amount of gentrification that was happening in Chicago, made me feel like there wasn't a place for me, even in my own home. Um, and so... Because you felt like you got gentrified out of an opportunity. Or- I Yeah, I felt like... 
there was all these brown people in the city and all of the places that I liked, I saw none of them. And I was exhausted, honestly. I was exhausted of consistently and constantly almost always being the only person of color in front of the house. It was it just became exhausting. Um and so thinking that it would be the answer, I moved to a place where that was going to be even more of a problem and I moved to <laughs> Seattle. Oh, uh, I didn't know. <laughs> and you know, and Seattle was kind of where um it was a hard place for me to live, but I'm thankful for it because it forced me to channel my anger. Right. It forced me to say, it's not enough for you to be hurt anymore. It's not enough for you to be angry anymore. Um, But what was different from Chicago, where people were so expressive about how they felt about everything, regardless of what it was. In Seattle, everybody was very quiet. Um, And there wasn't a lot of direct or open conversations about issues. Um, and it forced me to be able to learn how to vocalize um, in a way that didn't just say this is my point. It made me learn how to uncenter myself. Uncensor. Un- uncenter. Uncenter. You know, like the, the focus of these issues could no longer be about Ashton, right? Mm-hmm. Like the focus of these issues had to be about why I am merely a casualty of these issues. Um, and I had to begin to starting to broaden the way that I communicated about these because if it was just about me, then I was definitely one not going to be able to leverage that much space for myself. But I certainly wasn't going to be able to leverage enough space to pull back and reach for someone else. So with that, we're going to take um, a quick commercial break, and when we come back, we're going to hear about Ashton Berry and how she thinks about. Um, doing the work, moving, um, moving all people forward, people of color, equity, racial power, diversity. Um, those are a lot of big words that all got strung <laughs> together, I'm sure. I'm not sure once you put them together, it's actually a sentence. But it is the nexus of a lot of things that interest you. So we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about all those things. Stay right here. Today's program is brought to you by Whole Foods Market. From papayas and samosas to reishi mushrooms, if it's something that sounds delicious, chances are you'll find the freshest, best version of it at Whole Foods Market. They have more than 400 stores across the country, so if you consider pizza its own food group or just can't imagine when avocado toast wasn't a thing, Whole Foods Market has you covered. Visit WholeFoodsMarket.com to find a store near you. Whole Foods Market. Whatever makes you whole. Hey, thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. This is Katie, HRN Executive Director, and I'm so excited to share with you our coverage from the Charleston Wine and Food Festival. We are here live today at Charleston Wine and Food. Join us as we talk all things food. Come to Charleston, eat some seafood. Eat all of the seafood. Chicken fried chicken. 
with chorizo steak and salsa verde mashed potatoes. So quintessentially like Southern fare at its finest. And have important conversations. We're also talking about professional women in restaurants and how underrepresented they are. People of color in restaurants and how they're not talked about. We get real with Food Network's Manit Chauhan. Balance is BS. <laughs> uh, I, I, I was, yeah, I was told that uh, I wasn't going to be bleeped out. And find out about raising sugarcane with Chef Sean Brock. It's like being Indiana Jones or something. You never know what you're going to find. You'll come away inspired by the power of food and the food scene in Charleston. Here's Dr. Jessica B. Harris. Food is constantly in flux. Food is always moving. Food is the only real lingua franca that we have that allows us to connect with other folks. So tune in to Heritage Radio Network on tour at heritageradionetwork.org or wherever you get your podcasts. You can't go wrong. Hello, this is Jaden Cowan, and you are listening to Speaking Broadly. You're also listening to me chomp on some <laughs> crunchy bread. So I'm here with Ashton Berry, who is a beverage director, bartender, activist, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, her role as an activist now and what we can all be doing. Um, so, Ashton, what, right before the break, we were talking about Seattle and how that place just was uh, resonated with silence into which you spoke. You found language, I'm sure not for the first time, but a way to articulate clearly what it is that yeah. you wanted other people to hear. I don't even know if I was at the point where I was, I would say it was a practice ground. Um, it was a place where I started to say to myself, how do I move away from just thinking about me, but thinking about the ways that I know because I speak to other people who are struggling with, this, with these same issues in the hospitality industry in all cities. How do I begin to leverage the little bit of voice I have to be able to talk to more people or to be able to even get them to start to maybe possibly consider thinking differently. And this actually, I think, um, if I can jump on you no, right here, you jump on the, me. the idea of helping people to think differently is actually what drew me to you when we uh, have been on the Bacardi women, um, in leadership tour because I think that people live inside their own mm -hmm. minds and they're like, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Like I wake up every day and I try my best to, you know, do good for in the big picture to do good for friends and family. And I think you sort of were like, that's nice, but that may not be enough. And you actually have to get out of your own head and look at, bigger questions. Yeah. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because it was striking. The uncentering of self is something that I personally is constantly in my head. Um, and I can't really tell anybody, I don't know why that is. But I think when it be, it started, when I started realizing that even in the place that I sit in the world, as a woman and a black person, when I started realizing in so many ways that it's still privileged. Um, and I think when I started to realize the privilege in being me, 
I started to look at all of the ways that I have opportunity and all of the places that I have opportunity. And suddenly, something that I think a lot of people who maybe sit in quote-unquote marginalized or oppressed spaces, sometimes that we forget, is that there's actually freedom sometimes in living in those spaces. Because because of the lack of visibility, we can recreate our own narratives. Um, And about three and a half years ago, I stopped looking at being a black person in the hospitality industry as a setback. And I started looking at it as a way that I could create my own narrative. Um, and I, I won't say that that still hasn't had its difficulties. It has when you're creating a frame that no one's ever engaged with. So how do you describe the frame? You know, I don't. <laughs> I knew you were going to say that. I mean, one of, one of the things that I really try to do is reinforce the idea you know, you know, one of the things that I've heard throughout my entire life is, oh, you're so articulate. Um, you're so smart. Um, you're not like most black girls. Um, I've never met a black person like you. These are things that I still hear to this day, right? Um, more often, I think people realize. <laughs> and where it used to make me angry, and some days it still does make me angry, what it's begun to do is actually make me think about the limited access we have as people to people who are different than us um, and our lack of knowledge of people who are different than us. So when I have these conversations and a word that I use a lot is intersectionality, um, which was created by Kimberly Crenshaw, but I use it because I think what it refers to, well, it actually is referring, it's a black feminist critique talking about how we need to be intersectional about the way we look at feminism because feminism should encompass every idea of women because women aren't monolith. But I think when we place that into how we think about our lives and how we go into doing the work or leveraging space for others or being more equitable. Um, And when I, the reason why I use the word equity rather than diversity is because the fact of the matter is the hospitality industry is diverse. The hospitality, diverse just literally means difference. The hospitality industry is diverse. We have people of different ages, people of different races, people of different religions, people of different heights. You know, we are diverse. What we're lacking, though, is racial, gender, and social equity in a number of ways. Um, And the reason why that's important is because to be inclusive is to have equitable spaces. You can't talk about inclusivity unless the playing field what, like, what's the definition of equitable spaces? Um, space is something that I talk about a lot, and space is something that I personally focus on uh, because I feel like we all have the ability to transform spaces. To have an equitable space would mean a space where every person can walk into the space and be on a leveled playing field. 
that's what would that mean? It would mean a space without implicit biases. Uh, that's, that's utopia. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> right. But, okay. but mm-hmm. I think that that being something to strive for, even though it may be difficult, right, doesn't mean that we shouldn't strive for it. Um, and I think a lot of times, especially with the introduction of implicit, for those who don't know, implicit bias is basically unintentional or unconscious biases that we may hold. Um, if you've never heard of these or if you're like, oh, how do I know if I have those? The Harvard Institute actually has a center and online you can go and type in um, implicit bias Harvard and it will bring up their institute and they have a whole bunch of online quizzes that can kind of tell you if you are maybe a little biased in one direction or not. And I ask everyone to go and do them. You don't have to share them with anybody. They aren't connected. You can even do them anonymously. And I think that they're really interesting. Um, But I think it's important for us to strive for those because the more that we can be direct and honest about the honest about the biases we hold, the more we can begin to undo them. And the more that we can begin to have like transparent conversations with our consumers, employers, investors about the spaces we do want to have. So I was impressed in the ways in which you describe what actions we can take, right? Mm -hmm. There are a lot of people like this topic is just so big like what am I supposed to do Do. so two things one um I love your vulnerability in saying I haven't done it all right right because I think as um done so much wrong as (laughs) but as an activist I think it's very easy to get on your high horse and make everybody feel like you can never live up to me so let's start with like where you feel that vulnerability where you could have done better and then what can we do oh wow Um, as a leader in the hospitality industry, in my day-to-day work, there are so many ways that had I not come from a scarcity standpoint and fear and had such a fear of how people would react. What is a scarcity standpoint? Um, scarcity coming from a scarcity standpoint is basically this belief in, you know, you have bought into the idea that there's one seat. Yeah. You have bought into the idea that there isn't room for everybody. And there's in some places that is a reality, but I think you have to ask yourself if, is that the place you need to be then? Right. Are jobs and places that create this idea that there's only one seat. For anyone like you, is that a place that you really want to be giving your energy? And I think in some places, even places that have pushed and garnered and talked about inclusivity and pro this and pro that, they've still reinforced this idea in terms of their internal workings of there being one seat. And I think I've I've certainly failed. You know, communication should be a tool. Uh, and one of the places that I always have to strive to work to be better is in choosing who I'm communicating to. Um, it's something that I ask myself often now is who are you communicating to? Because communication is a tool. If you are... And are you trying to... And So who do you believe you should be communicating to? Be, well, to? well, you know, I can give a great example. At the Bicardi Women Leadership... Um, 
it was I was brought on a little bit last minute um, for reasons and I came there to give a conversation about doing the work Um, and what Bacardi asked me to do which I thought was brilliant was to have an honest conversation about the panel that they previously had why it didn't work um, and why it wasn't representative of the communicate community I was going to be talking to and in a certain point there became tension in the room between behind some of the things that I said and I had a decision and my decision was who are you communicating to and I had one or really one or two ways to go I could focus and struggle on trying to convince people who could not hear me in that moment or I can make sure that the two trans women sitting in that room and the very few women of color felt like they were seen. Now, what is creating spaces that are safe for those who are marginalized and what is creating spaces that make you hireable may not always be in line, right? (laughs) This is something I've had to learn in my career. Um, But I made a decision a while ago about the type of activist I was going to be. Wait, so who'd you talk to? Well, Who did you want to communicate with in that moment because you had a choice? I talked to the trans and women of color in that room because they were outnumbered by a lot. And I could see in their shoulder slumps, I could see in their eyebrows that they were hurt and that they were angry. And I could see by the end of it, although many people in the room may have seen that I had maybe not done my best or maybe, you know, actually I've, I still get feedback from that conference. So I actually think I did extremely well. Um, and I walked away feeling good. But what I looked for is I wanted to make sure that these women didn't once again go into a room and leave once again feeling as if no one had seen or heard them. And so, so let, let's, um, I think something that I watched you do in that moment is you also, you shut down the, at some point you shut down the conversation that created all that friction. Yeah. Um, you did not back down. You just shut the conversation down and you moved on. And in moving on, honored the people you were speaking to sort of most directly, your central personal point of view. I mean, you honored it. I think that's why you left feeling like, I d- look, I did my job. I mean, that's actually what yeah. I came to do. Yeah. But the at the end, you also gave very specific ways that all those other people in the room could participate, which I thought was invaluable. So yes. we have um, just a little time left together. And since I did think that was so valuable, I'm hoping that you can share Absolutely. some of the ways in which people who are, um, are listening, they're like, you know, first of all, it's very heady. But second of all, like, what do I do now? Well, you know, I think the most important thing is, what are you passionate about? Right now, activism, equality, intersectionality, diversity, they're everywhere. Those words are everywhere. But what are you as a person passionate about? What are, what's the thing that you look at that makes you say, this has got to change? And then go talk to people who do that work. 
go talk to them. Go talk to people who live in those spaces and go talk to them and say, what could I do tomorrow, right, that helps you? And then how can you put those things into your everyday life? So this may seem like very big. I will give an example. When I was managing at a hotel, um, I noticed that there was a huge struggle with communication between management and um, entry-level employees. There was a huge disconnect. Um, There was a huge misrepresentation between what people on, what our employees were actually saying and what they were actually hearing. And what I realized is, is because there was a lack of transparency about expectations from management with their employees. Um, and so one of the ways that every day you can help is by helping those who are striving to communicate with those with a different pattern and helping basically help them become better and advocating for themselves. Um, So that's what I did. I started telling my staff, if you want upper management to get this, one, prioritize what it is you want, right? And then ask directly, what is your direct ask? What is it that you want to come from this? And then if they give it to you, what's the next step? Right? Like, if, if what's the next steps? I think that one of the ways we could always help is helping communication. I think one of the ways that we can always help is by speaking up when we don't know. I think one of the real, the, one of the weirdest things that I find right now as someone who is constantly like, I don't know, tell me about that. <laughs> you know, like, I don't know, um, is the level at which people are so uncomfortable with saying, I don't understand. Um, rather than this, this this defensiveness of not wanting to be wrong, I think we'll find that a lot of it is about uncentering and putting your ego to the side. So community is everything. Um, if you live in a neighborhood, you're a part of a community. If you work at a job, you're a part of the community. If you don't know what you're passionate about, but you want to Put your resources somewhere, whether that be emotional labor or physical labor or financial. If you don't know what you're passionate about, ask the people in your communities what they're passionate about. Ask them what they would like to change. And I am sure out of the number of things you hear, one of them will call to you. And then start with talking to that person. It may be as easy as, easy as saying, I will proofread your, proofread your emails. <laughs> well, um, Yes, now with the, you know, typed with thumbs. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I am horrible. I am horrible. I now know that I can no longer send emails from my phone. I can no longer send emails from my phone. I make too many typos. Um, But it's, it's literally that simple. And I think in this day and age in the hospitality industry, I guess if I can leave everything with everyone with it, with one little tidbit is that If you work in the hospitality industry, especially if you are in front of the house, you are a gatekeeper of information. Think of the number of people you touch in a day. 
think of how many stories you hear in a day. If each of us did the work of communicating in a way that not only made our guests feel seen and heard, but let them know that we exist and are visible to be seen and heard as well, that alone would change the climate of not only which we work in, in a very, you know, in this craft world that we work in, but those who work in simple So I'm going gonna, gonna to just jump on that, which is to say, so the... Um, Many of the people listening may indeed be NFB, but I think that you can generalize that and say what you're really talking about is um, listening to stories told by other people, not co-opting their stories, but sharing, mm, sharing, but sharing them. And the sharing of stories is the most powerful way to create connection and a and a, a community and the sense that we are indeed all one. That all. Stories. I mean, it's one reason that I love doing this podcast, and it's one reason that I love Heritage Radio Network, is the the sharing of these personal stories that um, has such a larger ripple than mm-hmm. itself, and and connecting uh, people from different backgrounds, different parts of the world, all through this thing that's called listening. And once they listen, they share after the fact. Um, indeed, the world will. The world will change. So, Ashton, I want to end on a on a light note because <laughs> you. Um, well, I mean that's light in a way, right? Because we're all going to go out and change the world. So I love that. Yes. But um, I also want um, a drink recommendation. I hate drinking water. It's like one of the. I just never oh my drink. Gosh, I never you drink like water. One of my good friends are Alicia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I met. Oh, she's amazing. She's oh, amazing. She's yeah. incredible. Okay. Anyway, so. Um, what should I be drinking? Because you are a cocktailian. You can make me a great drink. Like, I don't drink water. What should I be drinking? Oh, my gosh. And it could be a cocktail. It could be non-alcoholic. It could be anything in the world. Okay. So, I'll be honest. I'm a hot toddy lover. And this snow has me in that feel. Um, actually, think about the tea that you're using for a hot toddy. I, I always like, oh, drink tea. I always feel like people are just kind of like, whatever, you know, about the tea. But, like, it matters. Okay. And I love a great oolong hot toddy. It just, like, Okay, what are, and what bath. are the ingredients in a hot <laughs> Okay, toddy. so generally you've got a little clove, a little honey, a little lemon. Um, what I like to do is if you have an oolong, it's just a little touch of demerara. You just need probably like just some sugar, just a little, just a little touch of sugar, um, a little squeeze of lemon. You don't need to put like a whole bunch of lemon, just a little squeeze is enough. And then I actually really, really love it with a little bit of brandy. Awesome. Um, I actually had an oolong before we went on the the air. I I love a good hot toddy. Okay. If not. Anybody who knows me knows that I'm going to say champagne. Uh, Champagne all day uh, is never a wrong choice. It's never a bad choice. And right now, I am in love with drinking Grognier. It's really good. Small producer. G-R-O-G-N-E-T. Wow. Um, And their prices are just, like, perfect. But the quality of the champagne is mind-blowing. And let me guess, is it available by bottle or glass at Air Champagne Bar? Oh my gosh, by both. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That is it for today. Um, Ashton, if people want to follow you, where can they find you? 
They can find me on Instagram at the T-H-E Collectress. Collect R-E-S-S. And they can find me on Facebook under Ashton Berry. Um, Which is A-S-T-I-N. Yep, A-S-H-T-I-N. Uh, B-E-R-R-Y. Yep, just like the fruit. <laughs> You're fruity. <laughs> and um, and you know where to find me, Danny Cowan, at FW Scout on Instagram and Twitter. As always, people, I'd love to hear from you. What did you think of this? What do you want to hear more of? I want to thank uh, today's amazing engineer, David Tatashore and Carlin Thompson. Great pictures, great advice, great mind. And have a great week and... Be back next week. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please... Join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.